Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 11th, 2019. This is episode 2358 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, and that means it is time for a expert counsel Q&A show. Here's what I've got on board for you today. I have a question for Gary Collins on beneficial bacteria. We, we talk about beneficial bacteria with fermented foods and, and things like that often. Uh, it's an incredibly important part of our digestive system, our immune system, etc. But have you ever wondered, like, well, how does beneficial bacteria survive the hydrochloric acid in your stomach to get into your digestive tract? You ever thought about that? Gary will tell us about that today. Uh, I got some updates here for you from some folks. Uh, Darby Simpson, of course, full-time farmer, answers your question on poultry and beef and pasture-raised animals and things like that and the business of farming. He's just going to give us an update on the wintertime activities on his farm. This is the depth of winter. It's kind of the slow season, but there's a lot going on for farmers, especially farmers that take it seriously as a business like Darby does. And then another update, we haven't heard from Paul Wheaton. Paul and, uh, and his, his gal Jocelyn are giving us an update on what's been going on at Wheaton Labs. And uh, Ben Falk, uh, I asked him to just tell me some of the stuff that's going on in his mind right now. We haven't had any questions for him lately. And of course, Ben takes questions on things like cold climate permaculture, permaculture in general, but really specializes in cold climates living in the, the, the semi-tundra of Vermont. Uh, he's going to talk to us about grafting uh, onto wild trees, so kind of a gorilla grafting type thing, but for not so that you can get fruit, so that you can help support native wildlife. Really cool topic, and we're actually going to have a, uh, um, what do you call it, a uh, future show with Ben uh, where we're going to go deeper uh, into this subject. Next up today, what about high-speed Internet in uh, seriously rural, maybe off-grid environments? Sean Mills will talk about that. How about carrying surplus fuel with you when bugging out? Stephen Harris will talk to you about that. And I have a question on when to cash out your silver and when not to. It's a really interesting question because the question is, well, what's the, what's the current view of the silver market and would you cash silver out right now? And my general answer to that is no. But then the question continues with, well, here's my situation and why I'm thinking about doing it. And the answer is, well, maybe. We'll talk about all of that and more. Uh, as we get into today's show, let's start out with bringing Gary Collins on here to talk to you about beneficial bacteria surviving a bath in hydrochloric acid. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of TheSimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things living off the grid, remote living, simple living, life simplification, RV living, just anything primal, paleo health, anything just to make your life simpler, easier, more enjoyable. That's the best way to put it. Also, guys, make sure to go to my website, which I just gave you, forward slash newsletter. Sign up for my newsletter because that's how I, how everyone stays in touch with me these days. You guys know I don't really use social media, especially for the business. Personally, I don't use it at all, hardly. So that's the best way to stay in touch and find out what I'm up to. Today's question Good bacteria surviving your stomach and hydrochloric acid. Here's a few 
good bacteria facts. I love bacteria. I'm a geek. I love this stuff. Um, we're basically 10 to 1 ratio of bacteria to cells. So the human body is primarily composed of bacteria. That's how we survive when you compare it to the cells we have. Bacteria are an amazing organism. We're just scratching the surface, understanding how they work. They're highly adaptive. They can survive extreme environments. They can even hibernate and wait till these conditions become, uh, become good for them and they can basically reanimate, which also, you know, bad ones can do that too. So, I mean, an example is they're finding out they've been doing studies, uh, with our eventual hopeful going to Mars that they have used the same conditions that would be on Mars and actually tested bacteria to see see if they can survive that environment. And they have found that they can, which means that there's a high probability that there has been or is life on Mars. Pretty interesting stuff. And we've also found out that bacteria can survive millions of years in, in the polar caps in, in extreme cold. And we have also found them in hot hot springs in high temperatures so they can survive now your hydrochloric acid in your stomach is is primarily when you're talking bacteria is to kill the bad bacteria not to kill the good bacteria bacteria good bacteria will use enzymes and a way to encase themselves so they can make it through the stomach now obviously when bad bacteria survive we know it because that's where you get you know things like montezuma's revenge and you know lower digestive tract chaos is the best way to put it. You just can get very sick. And not only that in your stomach, when you end up vomiting and things like that, because your stomach's trying to purge those bad bacteria. So by consuming fermented foods, yes, they're going to make it through the good bacteria. Not all. They will, some will be killed, obviously, in your stomach, but a lot will make it through. Um, that's how we work. And also remember that we absorb bacteria through our skin, nose. Oh, there's an email. Um, and, and, and through any orifice in your body, but primarily through your skin. And also remember that food will encase things like meat. You're not going to completely chew it and digest it into a liquid form, even in your stomach, which is stomach's HCL is primarily meant for protecting against bad bacteria and digesting uh, proteins. So it will survive encased and make it through. I hope that answers your question. And again, guys, remember to go to www.thesimplelifenow.com. All right, next up, let's hear from Darby Simpson on the ongoings on the farm in the cold, cold month of January. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and Grass-Fed Life calling in to give you all an update with what is going on here in 2019. It's January and we're busy planning our farming season. And for those of you out there trying to make a living or make a side hustle with your farm, I hope you're doing the same thing. I hope you're thinking about the year in advance and working hard, making certain that you're getting those farmer's market applications in, you're getting your butcher dates scheduled, you're getting your, your hatchery dates all set, because it's all important and this is a great time of year to do that. This is also a great time to sit back and reflect and think about changes you want to make on your farm in the upcoming season. That's something we go through. It's a process that we've kind of defined and and uh, uh, developed for ourselves here that we walk through each winter. Uh, we've got some pretty big changes coming on our farm this year. We're actually going to be cutting back in some areas and increasing in other areas and just trying to get in sync with life a little bit and, uh, you know, trying to 
um, uh, make the most of all the infrastructure that we've built over the last 10 years. So uh, we'll be talking about that on some upcoming episodes of the Grass-Fed Life podcast, which are coming out weekly. You can catch a new uh, podcast every Monday, Grass-Fed Life. You can get that at grassfedlife.co or in iTunes or any place else you get your podcasts. So I encourage you, encourage you to check that out and give that a listen if you haven't done so. Um, the other thing I want to mention, we've got uh, pretty exciting news. Um, you know, the, the last year, uh, myself and Diego Footer um, were very busy putting together our online Farm Business Essentials course, so we didn't do any in-person workshops, but we've actually got one scheduled, and that is going to be coming up this March out in Southern California. Um, I'm excited to mention that uh, it'll be myself and Diego, but also joining us will be Paul Grieve of uh, Primal Pastures and Pasture Bird. Uh, Paul has got a very, very large pasture poultry operation. Uh, he's a CPA uh, in a former life, but he's now a farmer. Uh, so we're going to be putting on a two-day workshop actually at Paul's farm in March. Again, that's in Southern California, just outside of San Diego. To learn more about that, you can go out to the grassfedlife.co website and check out all the details. But on March 22nd and 23rd, a two-day workshop now, what's pretty interesting about this is you're actually going to have one full day of uh, in-person classroom and field work with Paul, and then one full day with myself and Diego in a mastermind session. Um, and we've also packaged together a couple of other goodies for you. Um, we've got an optional meet and greet uh, one evening where we're going to go out for dinner and just hang out and get to know one another. But included in your course ticket is the full Farm Business Essentials online course. So this is a big package deal. It's a it's a it's a very good value, and it's very limited. Uh, each class is only going to be 15 students. Uh, we've already started selling tickets. We've sold quite a few of them. We do have a couple of VIP slots left. Uh, you get an extra bonus course if you're uh, one of the first 10 students to sign up. Um, there's an additional pastured poultry processing course that you'll you'll get for free tossed in as well. But we've just got a couple of those left. So if you're interested in, in doing the uh, one and only workshop that Diego and I are planning on right now in 2019, this is your chance. Again, head out to grassfedlife.co. Uh, if you got questions, you can always email us. You can shoot those over to hello at grassfedlife.co or send it directly to me at darby at grassfedlife.co. And if you've got a question that you would like answered on Jack's show here on uh, the, the Friday segment where the expert council members call in and, and answer questions, shoot those over to me. I'll be happy to answer them for you. Uh, this is a great time of year to get those to me. I don't have a backlog right now. It's winter. It's slow. I can turn those around really quick. So shoot those on over to me. And again, check out the podcast. Check out all the other free resources we have. But if you're serious about making money with your farm in 2019, you're ready to grow that operation or you're ready to, to start that operation and get serious about it, check out this two-day in-person workshop. Again, this is the only thing we're planning on doing in-person all year for 2019. Again, two days, March 22nd and 23rd in Murrieta, California, just outside of San Diego. Very limited seating. Check it out. As always, everyone, please have a wonderful weekend and take care. 
Well, speaking of updates, it's been a while since we've heard of heard from the madman of the Montana mountains, Paul Wheaton, on what's going on at Wheaton Labs and his little uh, fiefdom up there in the middle of the uh, mountains of Montana. So, Paul and uh, Jocelyn, why don't you tell us what's been going on up there? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com. I'm here with... Jocelyn Campbell. And uh, we're here with an update from Wheaton Labs. Uh, so, I think that the... The biggest thing that we're working on now, I know I've been crazy about it for the last two months, has been our new PEP program. And so uh, it's it's kind of rooted in something from, I've had like a dozen different people who had land and they were old and they wanted somebody to will it to. So a great example would be Mike Ayler, who died a couple of years ago. Uh, Mike Ayler is the author of the $50 and Up Underground House book, a, a really brilliant uh, piece of engineering. And other books. Oh yes, and he's got several other books. But uh, and he lived up. He lives up in the Panhandle of Idaho. He lived up in the Panhandle of Idaho, and we talked, um, you know, probably every two months or so. But there was probably eight different conversations where he was desperately trying to find somebody to will his land to, and he had some people who came out, and and those people uh, said, "Oh, I've got all this experience, and I want to do this." And then he sent them down the road. Um, he, he didn't think they had any experience at all. So he wanted a way to really prove that. And I've, I've heard this from many people. At the same time, I've heard from a lot of college-age kids that are, uh, you know, looking for possibly an alternative to college. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of uh, people uh, looking to the WOOF program and similar programs to go out and get homesteading and uh, agricultural experience. Uh, especially uh, with organics and, and with permaculture. And so because of all of that, then I, I kind of got this idea for a way to measure experience. Um, and so we came up with this PEP program. Um, the idea is is that there's four different programs. Uh, PEP 1 is about two weeks. PEP 2 is about a summer. PEP 3 is an additional nine months to take it, uh, PEP 2 and 3, out to a year. And then there's PEP4, which adds a little over two years onto all that. So it'd be like a three-year program of, of experience, but uh, what? I'd just like to interject that PEP is P-E-P. It stands for Permaculture Experience According to Paul. And with this design, um, it could be P-E-X, and X is your name, you know. P-E-J, and so Jack right. would determine what would be the things that would make up this permaculture experience program. And so um, uh, each, in order to do PEP 1, for example, there are uh, 22 different aspects. And so uh, we would require uh, to get PEP 1 certified completion of uh, 16 sand badges. And so we've got four different levels of badge. Um, there's... Uh, going to be the sand badge, the straw badge, the wood badge, and the iron badge. And so the sand badge represents about five hours worth of work. The uh, straw badge represents about five days. Um, and the uh, wood badge represents about five weeks. And the uh, um, iron badge represents about six months. We're short on time, so we wanted to just go highlight eight of the 22 different aspects that you could earn badges in, and um, they're dimensional lumber woodworking, round wood woodworking, food prep and preservation, gardening, rocket stuff like yeah. rocket mass heaters, 
tool care, woodland care, earthworks. That's just eight of the 22, just to give you an idea. And then um, we were going to talk about what it would be to get a sand badge for roundwood woodworking, just as an example. And there are six things. So we call these BB, bad, BBs, badge bits. And so uh, to get the sand badge for roundwood woodworking, there's six things. The first thing is the club style mallet. So um, basically you take a stick of wood, you whittle up one end to be a handle and you're done. Uh, we, we got that posted at Permies and like 24 hours later, somebody uh, got certified as having completed that Yay! BB. The first badge bit that <laughs> yeah. somebody did. Yeah. And uh, so, so if somebody, so we're going to have a PEP one event uh, in May, May 20th to June one, I believe. Yes. And so, uh, uh, if you were to come, then the, uh, this would be one of the badges of the 16 that we would shoot for. And so you, you would make a club style mallet, a compound mallet. So a dry stick and a green chunk of wood. So as the green, uh, block of wood dries, it will shrink onto the stick. Um, and then uh, the the next item would be to um, carve a big, ugly, nearly useless spoon. <laughs> and I think that's a lot of hatchet work. And if you do it with green wood, it it goes pretty fast. Uh, the next one is to add a horizontal log to a berm and a hugelkultur scaffolding. This is going to require. I mean, so first of all, because it's an outdoor project, then um, it's it's going to be something uh, where the quality of the wood doesn't need to be very good. You could put it together really fast. And um, and if it's a little loose, that's okay. So it's like the, the requirements are low, but it gives you an, a beginning idea of round wood woodworking. Yes. So, and then a dry peg in a green wood project. And we worked on that some today. Yeah. We did yeah. one of those. And, and so uh, we spent about, I think, about 20 minutes. Yeah. And we had a block of wood, and we were going to put uh, dry pegs in it to make, like, a coat rack. Right. And uh, I think that was your first time working with green wood, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm and, sure it was. And uh, uh, did that wood peel much <laughs> much easier than you ever thought? It, it did. It, and using a chisel on it was much easier. With, it's that. like butter. <laughs> <laughs> and then another item uh, for a badge bit is a three-log bench. We have lots of those around base camp. Um, we love them. And then um, simple coat hooks made from small trees or, you know, Right, where you've branches. got a fork in the branch, mm -hmm. and then so one end goes against the wall, the other end is going to hold your coat. Yeah. Um, just a very simple thing. And so then these would be the things to complete one of the 16 badges. Um, so, But the thing is, everybody could do this for free at home. The, the permies.com yeah. software is now set up to be able to validate people for their BBs, and then um, when they complete a badge and they've been validated for a badge, that will appear in their signature. Um, there's yeah. a, there's little icons. You that just show post up. pictures of what you've done on permies, and um, it's an awesome process, and it really gets people um, building these skills in an incremental way. So I think uh, uh, anything else we have to add about this? No, that um, the the event in May is free if you've been here before, or a hundred bucks for a two week event if you haven't. Um, there's more information about it on the forums, and that includes food. Um, yep. Simple, simple food. And then, um, we have other events coming up this year, a PDC and ATC and a Rock Mass Heater Innovators event in October, but the PDC and ATC are this summer. Um, our boot camp starts back up 
February 2nd? I think we got one spot left in the boot camp. Right. Um, there's a person who's who signed up for that last spot, and then we keep sending them emails saying, like, okay, so, like, you're coming out here on February 2nd, and we don't get any responses. So, as far as I'm concerned, that spot is still open. If somebody grabbed it, um, whoever can, like, actually reply <laughs> to their email right. uh, will get that last spot. Yeah. So and there's all, there is a bit of a waiting list starting, too. People want to come later in the year. So it's looking like a busy year at Wheaton Labs uh, again and a good year. Yes. All right, Jack, that's it. Thanks. Bye. Next up, I have a, a really interesting segment from Ben Falk uh, of Whole Systems Design on uh, grafting uh, app, you know, productive apples, and he's calling turkey apples, onto uh, wild trees. And this is a really interesting concept. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Uh, no questions right now, but Jack has encouraged us to just talk about what we're uh, working on lately. And one of the things we've been working on the last few years especially is grafting what I call turkey apples onto wild apples. And let me tell you why. I think there's – I'm realizing each year, especially when in years we don't have apples, which this year is one of them, why this is really – I think probably one of the lowest hanging fruits I can see, one of the most important things we can do for the local wildlife herd of deer for sure and turkey as well. Um, and here's here's why. So our deer herd is not strong in Vermont, um, like most of the country. We're very we have a harsh climate. And we have very limited oaks in a lot of the central mountains of Vermont because the oaks haven't made it back yet fully since the ice left being a heavy seeded plant. You know, they're moving back in, but they haven't made it to some, a lot of the high elevation hollows just yet. We're helping that along and that's a, that's a key dispersal, um, to be a part of and promote. But we're still a long ways off from having a lot of oaks that you have in like zone four in the Midwest, for instance. And apples are a big way that the deer herd, especially in turkeys to some extent, to survive the winter. One in every three or four or five winters is basically non-existent in apples around here. It's a, it's a great crop. They're wild. They're weedy. They're super productive when they happen. But it's not rare that there's just no apples. And there's these ornamental crabs that you see in, like, mall parking lots all over the country, especially in this part of the world, Um street trees that have been bred to produce every year it seems they produce their little fruits are like large marbles and one of the other key things about them besides that they bear every year which is huge by the way that's just as important is that they hold on to their fruit through the whole winter and these two things a fruit that holds all winter and reliability of every year bearing. So basically you have fruit every winter for like most, if not the whole winter, is massive because there's no food here basically for most of the winter. There's more food than all the animals can eat for, you know, six, eight months a year, um, nine months a year. And then you have like the, the bulk of winter where it's incredibly thin and that's where you have these big losses, you know, of wildlife. And so to promote wildlife, to so, you know, quote unquote, grow wildlife, which Aldo Leopold talked about, by the way, in some of his lesser known works, even though he's well known for a lot of his stuff, he had a whole concept of remises. Like basically he was talking about zone four permaculture before it was a term, um, about 
planting and producing wildlife as a farm crop, so to speak, in the borderlands and kind of the marginal mar- um, edges of, of fields and things like that and farms. Um, but we can really help the wildlife herd a lot, which is valuable for us, too, of course, for many reasons, uh, just from a food perspective alone. So we've been not only planting oaks, but what I'm really finding is even faster lower-hanging fruit is to find these these um, these tur- what I call turkey apples, because the turkeys especially love them. You'll see, you know, 20 turkeys in one of these trees in the winter. Um, the ornamental crabs, there's different varieties of them. I don't know if any of them are superior or not. I just find the ones that seem to do the best around here. And I take cuttings. Um, you know, I'll ask if, if the owner's there, if, if it's a second home and no one's around, uh, you know, they're pruning the trees anyways. Um, Sometimes I'll grab some science from like parking lots and stuff and in, you know, retail areas or street trees where, you know, they're going to get pruned anyways and those prunings be thrown away. I'll, I'll help prune them a little bit for them in the winter and grab, you know, hundreds of science very easily. And then I'll graft wild apples, especially which come up like weeds in the edges of any field around here within reason, especially in certain areas on our larger farm. They're just, Weeds. There's probably three to five hundred wild apples, let's say, over three acres of wet area, too. They're like wetland hardy because they've been bred by, you know, their seedlings by, so apples landing on the ground and been moved around by wildlife, pooped out as seed. And then the ones that can survive in very wet areas over generations do, and they're uh, coming up. So luckily we, we stopped the guy who used to mow the land before we got the land, these marginal areas, just so it would be goldenrod uh, and not woodies. We realized when we stopped having him mow this area, they they came up into wild apples. So those were just trying to come up for decades, probably. Um, they're actually they're actually almost all linked together as like a one root system to some extent. So we've been grafting every spring in our apprenticeship. Um, all these hundreds of them and then we'll protect them from voles a little bit although they seem pretty vole hardy too we'll give them a little bit of fertilizer a little bit of nitrogen you know blood meal or manure or whatever pro grow get them going get them above deer brows because they're constantly being deer browsed and then we have we'll have these um these turkey apple varieties on them these these plant these fruits that hold all winter and that bear every year and that's the amazing thing about these ornamental crabs is they've been bred for that incredible value um they've been just bred for the ornamental you know beauty so to speak of the fruit being on all winter but the fact that they bear every year is enormous i think i don't know how they've done it but they've i guess the smaller fruit is able to to be more reliable i would think i guess the blossom um is hardier too um i'm not really sure how that works and also maybe the smaller fruit is less resources from the plant so it can really do it every year they're better for turkeys because they seem more palatable in their small size the deer still love them too they do fall eventually late winter um i call them turkey apples because they just seem like the way of being able to promote turkeys you know with the limiting factors all the winter here it's not the rest of the year the wildlife you know dies calls in the winter here and um, so we graft them up and are basically working on this whole, you know, remis concept of having, um, you know, wildlife as a as a byproduct of of the farm working anyways, um, growing wildlife on the marginal edges that are very, very much underutilized um, in our fields and most any farm fields around here. So 
Want to mention that. Keep an eye out for those ornamental crabs. If you're a part of the world, they have them. Um, I mean, they are super hardy, probably zone three, four, and they bear every year. They hold the fruit all winter, which is just an incredible value. Anything that holds fruit all winter, wherever you are, if you have a real winter, is really key. Plant those, craft them on uh, to existing rootstock. If you have the existing rootstock coming up wild, and uh, you will be doing an immense service to the wildlife um, in your area. So the larger kind of con- context is this is within is, you know, being intentional uh, dispersal forces and, and um, participants in the in the ecosystem around us, whether whether it's our ecosystem, like we hold title to it or it's just, you know, public corridors or abandoned areas um, It's how people have been participating beneficially with their landscape for thousands and thousands of years and we would have a lot less diversity in the world today if it wasn't for people doing that they think a lot of the reason the oaks move so quickly up the coast of new england is because native peoples brought them with them and in their travels and of course they would because you would do that just to encourage your own food security you would move useful plants with you it's like the polynesians have done famously from island to island and any peoples the world over who have survived have had to do that. So being dispersal agents for useful plants, for us and wildlife, we're all in it together. So we're promoting, by promoting one, we're promoting the other. Or at least by promoting wildlife, we're promoting ourselves. I don't know about uh, if we just promote ourselves, if we're actually helping wildlife. But definitely the reverse is true. So, um, yeah, just some thoughts to think about and uh, to act on, hopefully. Thanks, and... Uh, Good luck. Good stuff, and I, I want to expand on this a little bit um, beyond because it, it's in there with what Ben's saying, but I don't know that everybody really completely hears it. It's not just when we look at the totalness of you know to quote Ben's name of his company, whole system design. Like we should help deer because deer are good animals and they're nice to have around, and it's a good thing, and they die if we don't help them sometimes. The Ethos of permaculture, whether the the vegan hippies who are are, are uh, trying to invade it or want to admit it or not, is a, a rewilding ethos, a concept of man and nature working together, and this is why in a permaculture system now if we have a you know a quarter acre suburban homestead we can have a little bitty zone five sitting out there in the corner as like a, a an offering to nature or something but really it's just a little spot we don't mow uh, and we see what happens there and maybe some beneficial insects it's not really a zone five and it, it doesn't fit with what I'm about to say so temper with this knowledge on a larger property multi acre property if we do a by the book permaculture design the largest zone will be a five. In fact, the zones will decrease in size as the numbers get lower. And zones, for those that are maybe new to permaculture, is when you step outside your door and look down at the ground, you're in zone one. You're inside your house, you're in zone zero. So zone one is a place that you will step foot on every single day. So things that need maintenance and upkeep and things like that, like a garden, generally will go into a zone one. And maybe not all of what you would call a garden, because maybe you're If you want to grow some corn or something like that and kind of just plant it, you don't touch it until harvest, that might go out more of, like, say, a zone three. Those are zone three agricultural crops. And then, so that'll be a place that we don't go to quite as often. 
But even if we are kind of going like a a weird little appendage sticking out, like say we leave our house like I do every day. I walk out of my house, I make a left, I go out and let the ducks out. That little peninsula that goes over there, even though it's kind of further than a lot of places that I would call zone two, zone three on my design, that's zone one because I'm there every day. I have to be. I have to be. So it makes sense to design my activities into zone one to my intense activities, zone two a little less so, zone three even more less so, uh, and my larger crops. And zone four is where we talk about things like agroforestry. This is where we are like running maybe silvopasture or we're doing large-scale food forestry, long, large-scale fuel forestry, and things like that. And then we have Zone 5. Zone 5 is where we do little fiddly things like Ben's talking about here and help manage it, but we don't really touch it. We might hunt and gather from time to time. We might do some gorilla grafting. We might add a couple trees. We might see a potential fire hazard and remove it. But in general, it's wilderness. And we exist in this system... As a horticultural, not an agricultural, a horticultural hunter-gatherer. So that deer and that deer population is not just about some sort of ethical responsibility to the deer, though it is, but it is also that deer is food security. That deer is the highest quality protein that's available to us and ours. And unlike the sheep or the goat that we have to chain up, you know, cage in, And we have to see to every single need. We just aid them with a few of their needs. And they repay us by living near us so that we can harvest them as we need them. And so that's one way to look at this. Now, one of the things that Ben said that I was really excited to hear him say, because I was like, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. Finally, he says it. They hold the fruit all, all winter. So if then somebody pulls that fruit off, these types of apples he's talking about, a real kind of, they're like kind of an apple you'd want to pick up and munch on. They might make good cider, though. Um, they hold that fruit long into the winter anyway, until they fall off or get blown off by wind really late in the winter. There's another fruit that does that. It doesn't require any kind of gorilla grafting. I just think it's probably not quite hardy enough for Ben's climate. I think Ben is in zone four. And I think the hardiest of native persimmons right now, because no one's done any work to change it, handle about zone five. But the persimmon is absolutely, for white-tailed deer, one of the most important tree crops that you can plant. And the good news is it's an outstanding tree crop for pork and beef and turkeys, whether they be domestic or wild as well. It's incredibly nutritious. It's incredibly high density. It's a high-carbohydrate fuel. Now, we talk about human diet and restricting carbohydrates. That's fine for us. We are not a deer. We do not live on brows and lichens and all this other stuff. A deer is made to eat this. Uh, so the beauty of the persimmon is it will also hang on the tree. Now, some of them fall early, some of them fall mid-season, some of them fall late. But inevitably, when you have a good persimmon crop, You look up in that tree this time of year, there's still some persimmons up there. And they, they ripen, or what's called blet, very, very slowly when they stay on that tree. And when they finally fall, they're at a peak of ripeness. Now, there may be some insects in there. Maybe there wouldn't be one you want to munch on. Maybe they're a bit overripe for human consumption by the time they fall off. But that deer eats that whole thing, including the seeds. 
Some of the seeds are ground up and digested. Some of them are excreted in their, their manure, and they propagate more persimmon trees. I have seen a deer that I wanted to shoot, but he was too far away because I had a bow. He was about 60 yards away from me. He was a small buck in Pennsylvania under a persimmon tree eating persimmons. And I'm sitting there with my bow going, I hope when he finishes, he'll come down this tree line, and I'll put an arrow in him, and I'll have backstrap tonight. Not to be. He finished his, uh, his persimmon, and there was a soybean field on this tree line. So he just started heading across that soybean field. A heavy wind came, and I had seen this deer craning his neck trying to find anything left on that tree he could reach, and there was nothing left on this tree he could reach. And a heavy wind came, and it knocked one persimmon off that tree. You know, and I'm watching, I can see it fall like, and it hits the leaves. And this deer, by now, is about 30 yards away on his way leaving. That deer spun around like a soldier does when you give the camp command reverse march. I mean, it was boom, 180, trotted back over, ate that persimmon, looked around, looked up in that tree like, is there any more? Accepted his fate that that was his last persimmon and then trotted away uh, not to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, injected with my arrow. Uh, and, and much to my, I went home hungry and the deer went home with a belly full of persimmon that night. Sometimes you win and lose when it comes to hunting, especially archery hunting. But that cemented me on the value of persimmon for white-tailed deer. So if you live anywhere, I believe zone 5 to 11, you have to find the right varieties for it, but 5 to 11 persimmons, persimmons, persimmons for this application. Another incredibly important tree that holds fruit really long till it drops it, but is less useful to deer, but very useful to white-tailed turkey uh, and black bear that will climb the trees to get them and other wildlife is black cherry. Wild black cherry, uh, incredibly adaptable tree, definitely worth looking at. But I'm gonna have, we're going to have Ben on to talk more about this whole Zone 5 cultivation uh, and this walking hand-in-hand -hand with nature and hunter modern hunter-gatherer mindset. Uh, soon in the future. Let's take another one. This one on uh, the needs of, of, the, of ISP providers for rural Internet when you don't want to be sitting there with or maybe you don't even have that because you're fully off-grid. And we'll have Sean Mills talk about that. Hey, guys. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and I have an expert panel question from John. John says, what are the best options for rural high-speed Internet? Details. I'm moving from an urban to a more rural area that does not have high-speed Internet. There is high-speed Internet a few hundred yards away in one direction and about half a mile in the other. However, the providers have said that running more high-speed Internet to fill the gap is not cost-effective. I lived in the same dead zone a few years ago and used AT&T MiFi, and it was awful. Dropped connections to the devices and was limited data. We tried Verizon Unlimited, but also also constantly lost connection with devices and it's throttled. Uh, so for those of you real quickly that don't uh, have this kind of issue, throttle just means once you hit a data cap of 50 gigs or 100 gigs, something like that, uh, you're deprioritized on uh, that stream or, or beam. And so everyone who hasn't hit their cap uh, gets their data before you do. So your internet doesn't go away, but it might drop down to something like one megabit per second. 
Uh, so John says, uh, so far the best option looks like NetBuddy. Uh, is it as good as they claim? Even satellite is such limited data when you stream, use YouTube, and for general browsing. We consistently use 50 plus gigs a month, so unlimited is important since the cell providers limit to 23 gigs. We are surrounded by tall pines, so line of sight is not an option. We're about 400 feet from the main road. John did send in uh, a Google satellite image to kind of show me uh, what kind of uh, situation he's looking at. Um, so, John, you know, I have dealt with this issue, um, and the solution that we settled on was satellite Internet from Viasat. Uh, so on our off-grid homestead, our driveway is about three-quarters of a mile long, and we're well over a mile to the closest place where we could even get access to high speed. Um, so something like Satellite or NetBuddy was going to be uh, really our only option. Now, Biosat offers what they call unlimited package uh, packages that offer speeds up to 25 megabits per second. And the more you pay, the higher your limit is before you're throttled. Um, our package has no throttling until you hit 150 gigs. Now, that being said, we pay $170 a month for it. So that's our cost of high-speed Internet. Um, that We also very rarely hit 150 gigs. Now, the, the availability of packages is different based on where you are. So in some places, you might only have 12 megabits per second. Some places, the maximum throttling uh, limit is different. But we had a package at one point uh, when we first got satellite where we had a limit of 50 gigabytes per uh, per month. But we had a free time, uh, quote unquote, free time from midnight to 5 a.m. So what we did is is uh, we we had a product called Play On that would act as a DVR of sorts. And during that time period, anything that we used would not be counted against our limit. Well, we weren't going to say, well, hey, let's all get up at midnight and we can stream movies until 5 a.m. and then go back to bed. But we could set up this system, this play-on system, to record things from Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime. Uh, it's got, it literally has hundreds of different channels, streaming channels that you can uh, DVR with this system. And so during that free time, we would download shows or movies, and then we had a library of things that we stored on an external hard drive that could be viewed during the day. Uh, we normally never saw actual speeds below 10 megabits per second, and during parts of the day, we could see speeds over 20 megabits per second. Every now and again, something would happen, and, and it would drop down, and we'd have a week or so where it would be five, and that would be miserable, uh, but that was rare. As a matter of fact, we discovered after uh, one period that the initial installer um, had aligned our satellite incorrectly. And so we had a guy come out and, and fix that and definitely saw uh, big increases in our data after that. Uh, so now while expensive, this was the best option for us. And I have no complaints with the service itself. Um, so so Viasat, I've heard a lot of people that use HughesNet and complain and say it's horrible and it's slow and it's worthless. Viasat just recently launched a new satellite called Viasat 2 two years ago in 2017. It came online last year, and as far as I remember, it had more throughput than every other satellite Internet in existence, and they have another one that's supposed to go up this year that's going to have one terabit per second throughput. So, 
they're they are increasing um, the quality of satellite internet uh, every couple of years. Now, as far as NetBuddy goes, I do have some friends uh, that have used that, and they use it along with a directional antenna. So if you're downtown somewhere and you've got great access to cell towers, it's a nice system. But if you're in the in a rural area, you have to have good internet uh, or cellular data rather, and they run off the AT&T signal. So you mentioned you use AT&T MiFi, so it sounds like you at least have access to an AT&T uh, AT tower. What you're going to want to do is you're going to want to take a directional antenna uh, and use one of the many webs website programs that tell you exactly the azimuth you need to set that antenna to, and then tr put that together with the router and as far as I can, as far as I know, um, for sixty bucks a month, you do get unlimited service. Uh, but, but you know, again, you you have to have access to that AT and T signal. So I think if you do, if you've used AT in the AT and T in the past, you put that together with a directional antenna to boost the signal going into the router. You might have really nice unlimited uh, internet at good speed. So here are a few other tricks uh, for using rural internet options. Uh, number one, set the HD quality as low as possible when watching things like YouTube. There's no reason for you to be watching an instructional video uh, at 1080p. You can 280 is just fine, and uh, or I think maybe it's 240. Uh, but in any case, there is that you can you can go in in your settings and set things like YouTube down to a lower resolution, and that minimizes buffering as well as eats up less of your data. Uh, if you're visiting news sites, see if they have a low bandwidth version. Uh, I know CNN has something called light.cnn.io, which is no videos, no frills, it's just stories. And you link to it and you get a just basically a text version. And so that's a nice way to get your daily news without having a bunch of autoplay things popping up and sucking down your bandwidth. Uh, set your email to the basic version. I know Yahoo Mail and Gmail uh, have this you know, where, where you've got a basic version. And that, load, again, loads your email without all the frills uh, that eat bandwidth and data. Uh, number four, look into programs like Night Shift and Play On to essentially DVR streaming movies and shows uh, either during free times or maybe even when you're away from the house. There's tons of places that offer free high-speed Internet. And so if you're a little strategic about uh, getting in or near those places and utilizing a system like PlayOn to DVR those programs for you, and then you watch them at home and there's no bandwidth usage. Uh, I, I actually know a guy who goes to a church that has a local Wi-Fi network with pretty high speeds that, you know, anyone that's a member can jump on. And so he actually takes his laptop and leaves it in his car when he goes to church and sets play on to download the previous week's episodes of shows that he likes to watch and occasionally movies. This guy gets three to four hours of content per week on his device without using any of his own bandwidth. So when you think about the fact that Starbucks and McDonald's and any hotel you go to, all these places have access to uh, free high-speed Internet 
put those together with a, uh, a local DVR program and you can get access to a lot of things without eating up your bandwidth. Well, hey, John, uh, good luck. I hope this helped and thanks for sending in the question. Uh, guys, keep sending the questions in on off-grid living, alternative energy, and even rainwater harvesting systems. Uh, keep those coming in to Jack. I, I really enjoy answering them. And if you have any other questions for me, uh, follow-ups and things like that, uh, you can send them to me at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmysolar.com. Thanks, and talk to you next time. Next up, we have a question for Stephen Harris about carrying extra fuel with you when you bug out. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the expert panel to answer your question. I have a question for Stephen Harris. I, if I have to evacuate my home, does it make sense to carry additional fuel in my vehicle? And if so, what is the safest way to do so? Well, you might have to evacuate your home and you got a quarter tank and all the gas stations are empty because there's no power or everyone else is taking it. So background, sometimes people have to evacuate and they're not sure when they can return to their home or if their home will be standing even when they return. Look at recent hurricanes and wildfires, for example. In that kind of situation, if the time permits, won't it make sense to take some gasoline in addition to what's in your vehicle's fuel tank? <laughs> yes, it does. Some evacuations involve huge lines of traffic, many of which, which are standstill, like Hurricane Irma when millions of people were all fleeing South Florida at once. Uh, I think Irma went across to Texas as well and did the same thing. Uh, or am I confusing my hurricanes? Anyways. Um, I would, that was Ivan, I think, never mind. I would be concerned about running out of fuel and not being able to refuel when I arrived at my destination in that situation. But I'm also concerned about safety of driving with gasoline that's not protected inside of a few vehicle's fuel tank in Florida. Henry, you need to go to Stephen1234.com. And take the fuel and fuel storage class. It's audio. I did it with Jack. It's absolutely fabulous. Covers fuel in detail. Now, safety aspect. While I do not and never want and ever will tell you to carry fuel in your vehicle on a daily basis, because on a daily basis you are apt to get into an accident sooner or later, and you have no concept in your human brain of what 50 to 150 Gs of collision can do, and the answer is rupture your fuel tank and spread it everywhere and make you a uh, like a monk in Vietnam. Uh, the immobilization, I think it's called. Well, that's what would happen. So, if you're bugging out, that is a shorter period of time. And the chances of you getting in an accident, especially in bumper-to-bumper traffic, is not very high. So you are damn smart, and you are damn correct, and you are so 100% forward-thinking in that you want to take extra fuel with you because you're not going to find it. If you don't have it before a disaster happens, you're not going to get it during or after a disaster. 
Now, if you can, you can use the horrible government EPA five-gallon containers to haul fuel in the back of your vehicle. It's better than nothing. I hate better than nothing. Uh, what I should say, it is barely adequate. I never say better than nothing. I just said it out of habit. I'm sorry. It is barely adequate. When you say something's better than nothing, then you have settled for something that is inferior and it's over nothing. When you say it's barely, barely adequate, you try to find something that's better. In this case, what is better is 15-gallon HDPE barrels and drums that you can get off of Craigslist. Lots of them come from car washes. Lots of them come from places that have syrup uh, for Coca-Cola and everything else. And the recycle place for barrels and drums even cleans these things out and dries them. And in Detroit, they sell them to me for $18 each. And the car wash sells them to me for $10 each. And all I have to do is drive up 24-7, pick up the barrel, put it in my truck, and deposit the $10 per barrel in the locked mailbox. It's an honor system, and it's pretty darn good. You want a really good, really good bung wrench off of Amazon, and I mean like the $33 solid aluminum bung wrench that you can cave in a skull with, and it will last you the rest of your life, not the hollow, thin one. You want to be able to tighten those bungs down like crazy. A 15-gallon HDPE tank, uh, is basically the same damn thing, if not heavier and more durable than your vehicle fuel tank. Your vehicle fuel tank is made out of HDPE, which is high-density polyethylene. I can tell you this for a fact because I was a vehicle engineer for Chrysler doing aerodynamics and thermal management, and I actually had situations where the muffler and the catalytic converter on prototype vehicles without adequate shielding actually melted the fuel tank, and the pressure makes a little volcano come out like the size of your finger out of the fuel tank because the plastic gets soft and the fuel pressure pushes it out. So a 15-gallon HDPE tank is good. Now, the way you get fuel out of this, listen to the fuel and fuel storage class, is that you get four feet of fuel line and six feet of fuel line, and you get a 3-8-inch bulb and, of course, 3-8-inch fuel line, and the bulb is a standard marine bulb like you put onto your fuel tank for your outboard motor, and you compress it, and it gets the fuel flowing, and it siphons it into your tank. Now, for a pickup truck, this is easy. You put it in the bed, put the hose in the tank, start to siphon, and it takes 10 to 15 minutes, and it will siphon the entire thing into the truck. I did this for three years. I drove around the country every year and went about 10,000 miles, and I would fuel up in cheap states, drive all the way through California from Oregon, and then refill up in Arizona. I had 1,400 miles of range at 14 miles per gallon in a 1997 Dodge Dakota and a 14-foot camper trailer. So you most positively, absolutely, definitely want to carry fuel with you. And what's better is you want a Coleman dual fuel stove. 
either a single burner or a double burner or a double mantle dual fuel stove that runs on Coleman fuel and unleaded gasoline. That way, sitting in your tanks and sitting in your vehicle, you basically have an unlimited amount of fuel on which you can cook, heat, and illuminate with. So two is one, one is none. Though actually, this is what we call function stacking. You got the gasoline for the vehicle, and you got the gasoline for cooking and illumination. In addition, you have an idling engine, so with an inverter, you now have a source of electricity, so you have a source of illumination, you have a source to recharge your batteries for your phone and your lights and your headlamps, and of course, the friends and people you meet in the Walmart parking lot or wherever you have evacuated will be absolutely thrilled to be recharged by the inverter clamped onto the battery of your vehicle, whether it's idle or not. So... That is the short story. If you have a gasoline vehicle, you bring gasoline with you. If you have a diesel vehicle, you bring diesel fuel with you, and you use something like an XGKEX mountaineering stove from MSR, and it will burn diesel fuel and cook with it. Uh, I have done that, and it clogs up after 20 hours, and you need to clean the jets and everything else, but it absolutely positively works really good. I love the subject of fuel so much. I have a video coming out on fuel where I actually show you how to make your own Coleman fuel. I show you how to use fuel you can get for $2 a gallon in Coleman appliances that you can actually use inside because it doesn't stink, doesn't make you cough, and it's even better. This is going to be a special Harris video. And I'm looking at doing Bug Out Trailer 10 episode, maybe on nothing but fuels you would be using when you bug out. Butane, propane, diesel, gasoline, white gas, kerosene, you name it, I am going to cover it. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Please keep on calling the questions in. If you want to reach me and see all of my previous claims, training it's at steven1234.com and look out for my new membership site coming over where you get all my videos and the rough cuts before they're released thank you great stuff from steve and i think the next bug out uh trailer episode will be an excellent one and we probably will stick mostly to fuel and there's just a lot to talk about there anyway steve did a good job on that so i have nothing to add let's go ahead and take my anchor segment today uh, Tim writes in, my question is, will you give us a 30,000-foot flyover view of where you think silver and gold precious metals are right now? Would like to hear your thoughts on exit strategy, specifically if now is an appropriate time to cash out gold and silver to buy a piece of land. Here are the Now, I want to just say, like, see, this is how I, I talk about how to do a question. This is how to do a question. He did use two, two, uh, two sentences to get it out, but... It's concise. I can read that, honestly, in about two seconds in my head. All right, and then the details are a little complicated, but he hits enter twice, so there's a space in there, so it's not a blob of text. And then he says, this, I'm just trying to help you help me help you when I talk to you about how to send me questions. This, You send me a question like this, you're probably getting on the show. Because I get so few of them, honestly. Here's what he says, though, the particulars. I found my dream property, 15 acres in northeastern Oklahoma on the bank of the Illinois River. This is an, this is, uh, an area you visited to look at a development when you lived in Arkansas. 
I know the area then, okay? I'm getting the land at a great price, and a long-term potential of this acreage is terrific. The downside is I have to cash out all my gold and silver and then some to make it happen. Chris Martinson has said the historical value of gold is one ounce of gold to one acre of land. By using that metric, uh, the land is more than a fair price. On the other hand, that would be all my gold and silver in the future event that there's a huge spike in value. Thoughts? Thanks, Tim. This is really two totally different questions, but because it was put together so well, I'm going to answer it. So the first question is, what, what, what do I think of the silver and gold markets right now as a whole, uh, and you know, would I exit? Okay, so the, the first answer is, I'm, I, no, I wouldn't just randomly exit silver and gold, because I don't recommend investing for silver and gold for those reasons. My primary reason for investing in silver and gold is to preserve generational wealth and as an oh shit insurance program. That could be, oh shit, the shit has hit the fan and money is worthless, which is unlikely but possible. Uh, or my personal life has shit, shit has hit the fan in it. And, you know, gee, look, there's, there's $80,000 or so that we didn't know we had. We can use it or part of it. And we can use it in a bunch of different ways. Okay, so that's, that's why I recommend the approach I do to silver and gold in the first place. So in a general answer, no. Because I believe if you want to trade for profit silver and gold, the correct instrument to use is an ETF or exchange-traded fund. Because we're going to about to talk about, if I say yes to this, some of the problems Tim has to think about in doing this. Okay, The beauty with an ETF is if I think there's a big drop in silver for no good reason, And I think that it's going to have a good six-month performance. I mean, it's going to go up 10% in six months. That's a 20% annualized return. That's a nice cherry pick. Let's take this risk capital and go into it. If I'm going to put $10,000 on that and think, well, I might make 1000 bucks off this and come out at $11,000 in six months and exit that position and free that capital up until it's time to do something else with it, and I go down to the pawn shop and I buy $10,000 worth of silver coins, I'm a dumbass. If that's, if that's my play, okay, because with an ETF for a very small brokerage fee, I can keep almost all that $1,000 gain. I don't have a lot of, except for capital gain, short-term capital gain tax, I don't have a lot of other things going on there. It's priced here. It goes up 10%. I get 10% more. I sell it, and that whole transaction can be done about five seconds for the buy and five seconds for the sell. If I'm going to do this inside of IRAs, I'm going to use an exchange-traded fund. They are very um, high-visibility investment vehicles to the government. It, it is public. It is the most public of all your investments. Now, I know that Joe down the road can't see it, but Joe the IRS agent and Joe the politician can see it. So when I say public, I mean the government. It's public to the government. So I like physical metal in things that are not public to the government. That's why you do not hear me recommending physical metal IRAs. These are things for long-term investments for your retirement. Gold and silver are for long-term generational wealth and oh shit insurance programs. Okay, So there's where I'm at at that. In gen my general view of the price of silver right now is silver, from just a technical standpoint, has recently tested lows down into the uh, 14s, upper 13s briefly, you know, let's say, uh, if I remember, right, like August, October-ish, November-ish, 
and it bounced pretty hard on that floor as though, okay, this is, this is the bottom end. I would caution you that silver did that at about 1650 pretty hard from January 18th through July 18th. Uh, it really seemed to show a floor at seven, uh, 1650 an ounce in that period. Uh, if you go back prior to that period, it's kind of bouncing around up and down really hard uh, between about 15 and change and 18 and almost 19 bucks. And we are well off. Uh, you know, a recent, you know, recent high was back in like 2016. If you check me, if I'm wrong, but uh, I think a summer of 2016, we're at like 20 bucks. And before that, we were way down from there, and we have to go way back to where silver had a big kind of weird peak uh, many, many years ago. Uh, so it does seem that we've stabilized at this $15, $14 range. Um, so you, when you're looking again at trading, you know there was money to be made. If you're doing the ETF thing, uh, let me pull up a chart. Give me a second here. I'll hit pause. All right, so say uh, in November you had picked up a silver ETF, you'd be somewhere in the $14 range. Uh, and then right now you're, you're in, in like 15, 30, it's almost what I said, it's about a 10% gain. So you could have made 10% on your money trading silver in the last two months. But I don't do that kind of short-term trading, not very often anyway. Unless I see some kind of chair, like just something ridiculous happens, right? So, in the end, silver's been pretty stable in the fifteen to twenty dollar range, and and I don't see any reason for it to break out of that right now. Now I love Chris Martinson, uh, but since he has tied his his ship to Lear Capital, he's stuck, you know, saying good things about silver. And they are constantly telling you silver's going up, even when it goes down, sideways, left. And, and I just, I don't take advice from those types of sources anymore because they have a vested interest in getting you to buy. One thing they are saying that is true, though, is the solar revolution continues to grow and solar panels require a little bit of silver. Uh, there's also a ton of other things that require silver. And this type of demand with silver for things like computer parts, solar panels, medical dressings, etc., is what's known as an inelastic demand. Um, if I have to put 30 cents worth of silver in a solar panel and silver triples, and now I have to put 90 cents worth of silver in the solar panel, I'm still going to buy it. And so these types of industrial demands, as they grow, they can put pressure on the silver market and drive the price up, but only if people are unwilling to sell as that price goes up. Because there is a metric shit ton of silver in coins and bars all over the world. Think about how much some of you guys have in silver and realize you're small potatoes compared to what some people are holding, right? So there's plenty of silver. There's no shortage of silver. We need to be honest about that. It is a precious metal, but it is the, it is the, the, the most uh, common precious metal that's ever existed and probably ever will exist, right? There's, there's a lot of silver out there. Uh, and just because some of these inelastic demands actually effectively take silver and make it go away, you can't ever recover it. It's in reco That's the other thing about these. It's non-recoverable. It's going to take a lot of that use before you have any real effect. So I don't see silver taking any giant leaps forward or any major drops downward right now 
based on actual supply and demand. Silver is incredibly volatile, and it is incredibly volatile in its response to other markets. Uh, as, as money uh, flees certain monetary instruments like stock market, etc., if it pours into gold, silver generally tracks somewhat with gold on an upward trajectory. Uh, and so you can think of it as gold dragging silver along for the ride. So could, could you do this, and then next year your silver would have been worth $5 more an ounce or $10 more an ounce? Sure. My, my real question, though, is other than some sort of ego thing, do you really care? See, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say this makes sense if you want to do it as far as buying this piece of land and cashing out your silver to do it is real estate is an incredibly stable and generally appreciative in value investment. It is more stable as an investment than silver or gold. It is less volatile than silver and gold, especially the type of real estate that you're talking about. So I would see it, instead of I'm cashing in my silver, I would see it as an exchange of one class of investment to another. Now, I would then advise you to start slowly building back up your silver stack. I really would, but I wouldn't fault you for doing this. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying that's how you have to approach it and look at it. This is one of there's Let's talk about my concerns now. My biggest concern. Whenever anybody has the ability to, and I, I got in touch with Tim by instant message on Facebook, if you have the ability to fully pay for a property and you're not going to go through a, a lending agency, obviously there's benefits to that. There is one really big detriment to it that usually happens. Since you agree to sell me your property and I just have the money, you get the money, I get the property, we're all happy, no one goes and gets the property appraised. Because there's no lender that's like, hey, 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 hey. Before we give you this money and accept the property as collateral, we kind of want to know if we have to dump it to cover your your inability to fund uh, funnel, fund the debt, that we're going to get our money back. So it is often the case in these situations that people get emotional. It's my dream property. <clears throat> Wrong answer. It could be your dream property right up until you make a decision to purchase it. Then you must become a heartless Vulcan. I always say that in real estate. You have to be a heartless bastard once you reach the point of, okay, I think I want this. Okay, now it has to be all logic, and it has to be based on numbers and facts and reality, and screw anybody that doesn't like it, and you take your emotion and put it on the shelf until you're done with the process. So I would heavily, heavily suggest that you spend the 500 bucks as an insurance policy to have this property appraised. Okay, And once it's appraised, you order the appraisal, the appraisal comes to you, and if the property appraises $50,000 higher than the guy's asking, he doesn't ever need to see it. However, if the property appraises below, then you take that appraisal to him and say, hey, we need to work this out. And maybe we can th say this guy was a little bit too conservative, and I can come up a little bit, but hey, look, you know, most people aren't going to have cash to buy the property from you, are they? They're going to have to go to a lender. And since it's it's raw land, not a house, it's even tougher. And they're going to have to come up with a bigger down payment. So you have a negotiating tool. And if it happens to underappraise, you may way more than get your 500 bucks out of this. My next concern is how much money do you really have in silver and gold? Do you have as much as you think you do? Did you count up all your ounces and multiply them by the spot price? Because that's not how much money you're going to get. So you need to classify 
all your silver. These are American Eagles. These are bars, whatever. You need to call some places that you could go sell your silver and say, what are you paying for X, Y, Z, PDQ, right? All right? And you need to make sure that you're actually going to get as much cash as you think you're going to get. The next thing, selling this amount of silver, you're going to have tax consequences. And I don't really see a way that you're going to be able to avoid that. Okay, and I'm going to talk about a way where you might be able to avoid some of it here in a minute. But you're going to have to go to a place, and you're going to have to sell it, and you're going to sell a whole more than 500 bucks, and they're going to give you a form, and this is going to be reported to the IRS that, that Tim sold $80,000. I don't know what you're paying for this, $100,000 worth of silver, $200,000, some amount of silver. You're going to have to put that on your taxes. You're going to have to declare a basis, and you're going to have to pay tax on it. If... If, and you're going to have to come up with this number, and a lot of times this is a really hard number to come up with, because let's face it, most people do not keep every single record of every single time they buy or receive a piece of silver, so you're going to have to do your best guess. The good news is, as long as that number makes sense, you're probably not going to get audited, and you're probably going to pass an audit even if you did, because it's going to be coming on them to prove that you got that silver for less than you said you did. So you, you can kind of figure out, I bought about this much this year, this much that year, this much this year, aggregate it all out and say the average purchase price of this silver was X. Let me tell you where I start liking this idea a lot. If the property checks out, it really is your future, it's what you're really looking for, etc. And, and it benefits you long term. If your number something like $22 and you get to do this and take a loss... I really like this. If the number is $7 and you have to pay capital gains on about you know a 100% gain, I don't like it as much. And it still comes down to this. Know what you're doing and what it's going to cost you. And understand that's what you're going to end up with. And this is one of those situations where This insurance, this wealth insurance you've created, now has the ability to acquire you a piece of property. And you have to look at the totality about how that affects your life and your retirement. You probably weren't betting on using that silver in your retirement anyway. So I'm okay with this if you have complete understanding of the tax consequences, the actual value of the metal, etc. I'm also really going to encourage you to have one of those conversations with the seller that we talk about from time to time in the South, and Oklahoma's far enough South to understand this one, me, you, and the fence post. If you have a me, you, and the fence post conversation with this guy and say, would you take indirect payment any portion of this sale in silver? And maybe you just happen to give him a box of silver. And maybe he just happens to drop the price on the property. And maybe don't nobody know that but you and him and the turtle and the fence post that the turtle's sitting up on top of. The post turtle. Which I won't explain it. You have to look it up yourself if you want to know what a post turtle is. Maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't. I can't advise you to do that. That's, that's not right. You know, that's not right. But it all depends on what that number is. That you're going to, you know, put in as a basis for how much you paid for your silver. But I'm going to tell you, I kind of love this. If that number's $24, if you can make that number $24, if you can defend that number at $24, you get to lose a shit ton of money on paper. 
And it doesn't matter that you lost the money. Because you've already decided, I think this stack of metal is worth having that property. You've already made that decision in your mind, or you wouldn't be asking me the question. So if you, on top of this, get to cut your taxes by five or six or seven thousand dollars, and you said it would be all of that and more, so that means you're going to have to come out of pocket with some money on this too. But you got the money. The property is yours. It's free and clear forever. And since it's kind of rural Oklahoma property, the taxes on it ain't going to be squat, right? So it's yours in perpetuity at that point. And then you get that money back. It might be, depending on when you bought most of your silver, that whatever you're coming out of pocket in cash By the end of the year, you're effectively getting it back on your tax return. It might be conversely exactly the opposite. It might be double. You you might end up having to pay enough capital gains. This is going to be more expensive to you. You have to factor that all in. But I never would have a problem with a person saying, look, Jack, I've been a good aunt, saved up an ass ton of silver, sitting there thinking it's really not what I want in my life right now, and I have, a, I have an ability to take that silver and put that into a piece of property. I wouldn't fault you for it. If you said I want to cash it out so I have money to pay my bills with, unless you're looking at a foreclosure, no. Figure something else out. You want to have a party? No. You want to buy a Corvette that's, that, you know, that's going to depreciate in value? No. You want to have a party? No. You want to buy an overpriced education for your kids that's probably going to end up back home in four years living in your basement? No. You want to buy a tangible, real asset and change your class of investment? That's the way to look at it, and I don't have a problem with it. Um, as to where silver will be in six months, I have no effing idea. There is so much unknown right now. I do think there's a lot of doom and gloom forecasters saying we're about to go into a depression that's going to be worse than the Great Depression. I think we'll eventually have one of those. And I think the people saying it right now, they've been saying it every year, on and on, over and over again, um, so that when it eventually happens, they'll be right. I just had John Pugliano talk about this. The indicators, financially, are not in place right now to have that kind of a recession. They're just not. There's too much good right now. Now, when you get this good, your next crash is really bad. Now, whether it's a 2008 or a 1999, we don't know. Or a 1987 short term, we don't know. But there will be pain in our future. But that the big one, you know, the big again one, like happened before, um, is not in the next six months. In fact, what I think you're going to see, good, bad, or indifferent, these ass clowns in Washington, D.C. are going to make a deal. And I think they're going to make a deal where everybody gets screwed, but it doesn't matter. When this thing ends, watch what happens to stocks. You will see a rally like you haven't seen for a long time. And it'll probably pull back from wherever it ends up because it'll get ridiculously exuberant. Um, but yeah, once that happens and all the bullshit that they're scaring people with goes away, it, it'll go away. And I just I want to real quick here before we wrap up today, I want to remind you guys one more time, uh, you're, you're going to hear the full court press this weekend because now we had a Friday. We had the first real Friday where government employees are supposed to be paid And they're not going to get a paycheck. Oh, my God. They'll show some poor lady trying to figure out how she's going to come up with 75 cents to do her laundry or something. 
Again, contractors are paid for services rendered and they're not employees. Contractors have their own problems, but contractors are uh, people that could be contracting to somebody else right now to do something else right now, and that's what they should be doing. Okay? Because they're probably not getting back paid. These employees are going to get back paid, either 100% or something like 80%, 90%. It's going to happen. Okay? And all of them can go get loans from federal credit unions right now. If they are already a member of a federal credit union and they have direct deposit from their paychecks into that credit union, that credit union will loan them up to the full value of their pay at 0%, taking the, the future deposit as collateral. Okay? So they don't have to go without a paycheck unless they're effing stupid. If you are a government employee and you don't think for yourself, and some of them don't, a lot of them don't, and you didn't have a, a your, your bank as a federal credit union, which you're kind of stupid if you do that, uh, you should be using a federal credit union because shit like this happens, you can still go to most federal credit unions and sign up with them today, and they will do a same type of loan, at somewhere between 2% and 6% interest, and again, I said this before, but if, if you took out a 6% interest loan over 60 days and the government finally comes back to life, Frankenstein's monster lives again, and you get your back pay, it will effectively cost you 0.33% on your money to have taken that 6% loan because you only it's a 6% annual And you've only borrowed the money and fully repaid it within 60 days with no penalty because that's how credit unions work because they work for the good of their members not to make a profit. All right. So if you are a federal worker and you are not a member of a federal credit union and you do not receive your direct deposit through that, you are wrong. And when this shit ends, set it up so that from now on you do and then you too cannot worry about this shit. U.S. military that we keep hearing, our poor soldiers aren't being paid. If they have their payment through USAA, and if you're in the U.S. military active duty, you should, they won't even notice. They don't even have to do anything. USAA is just going to cover it. So all the shit you're hearing about all the poor people suffering is all bullshit. And the few people that really can't get any money and they really are laid off and their contract or whatever, you know what? You ain't no different than anybody else that has to go through that shit and you should have been prepared for it. That's what we teach here. And nothing I just said has anything to do with pro or anti-wall. Nothing. It's just fact. If you think it's for or against the wall, what I just said, you have a massive perception bias, and you are clinging to a confirmation bias, because I didn't even mention a wall till now, did I? But I knew I had to, because some of you, I'm already hearing your keyboards. You're all mad at me on a Friday. They'll send me an email and tell me how wrong I am, but you'll have no facts to go along with it. Now, when you tell me you can't get a loan from a federal credit union, I'm going to send you a link that says you're wrong from a credit union that says, come on in and we'll do one for you, even if you don't already have an account here. So there we go. Let's go on into our weekend now. Let's real quick talk about how uh, you guys can help support the show. One way, become a member of the MSB. That's all I'll say about that today because my ending went kind of long there. I didn't really plan on going that long. Uh, but the other way is to do you do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there. You can see Amazon deals of the day. You can buy anything you want. As long as you start there, you help support us. Big thing, though, is we do uh, reviews, and I have a great product I'm bringing back for you today. Um, if you don't own a dog... It really doesn't, you know, just might even skip this segment. It's only going to be a couple minutes, but 
you don't own a dog, it won't be much use to you. This is a product called AromaCare Ear Wipes. I've brought this around before. I use this on all three of my dogs. Um, it is absolutely awesome. It's made with aloe vera and eucalyptus, and it's used to clean and prevent stinky ear in dogs. Um, my dogs are kind of unique, and they're very well trained, all three of them. But two of them, like, they almost like getting their ears clean. I'll tell you how to kind of help that happen uh, here toward the end of this segment. But I can basically call Charlie over, and he mows a little bit. And once I clean his ear and he realizes what I'm going to do, he's like, oh, I'm getting my ears cleaned up. <laughs> and he turns right around and do his other ear. Um, and it prevents, like I said, the stinky ear. And, and having problems, too, like... You know, buildups can create irritation, it gets red, you can get funguses and things like that. Clean ears, that doesn't happen to them. Lucy, uh, she was so hard to do things with, but now she's like, oh, well, I get my ears clean, that's okay, it's no big deal. Uh, she might like make a little tiny pee puddle on the floor so we don't do it on the carpet, but uh, she does that when she gets touched certain ways, but overall, it's not a big deal. Max is a baby. My 150-pound German Shepherd crybaby ass. Mopey, oh, one who dead. And I don't know if you've ever tried to make a 150-pound dog do anything he doesn't want to do. It ain't easy. But he has enough obedience that he eventually just sits there and takes it. We clean their ears. I clean Max's ears about every two weeks. I clean Charlie's and uh, Lucy's ears about once a month. When I first started doing this with them, I gave the whole frequency. I did a lot in the beginning to get them kind of cleaned out because I, I, they all had a little bit of a problem with it. And then I kind of check them every once in a while. Um, and this morning, even though Charlie's not due for, what, another four days, mid-month, um, I, I leaned over to pet him, and I got a little whiff of stinky ear. So I got my jug of this stuff out. got the, There are pads like you used to do, Acme pads, like for cleaning your face. They look just like that. And there were two in there. So I cleaned his ears, and I immediately ordered another tub. Now, you know me, too, is one, one is none. So in the storage, in the doggy storage area, I just pulled the new one out and put it on the shelf, but I ordered a replacement, so we have another one. They last a long time. There's like a 100 wipes. If you have one dog, they'll last for years. As long as you keep them closed tight so they don't dry out. But I had a lot of problems with Max. I, I would have to get up in the middle of the night. I would hear, and hear him shake his head and make dog noises and all. And I'd end up getting in the middle of the night and clean his ears from like a, a warm rag. I tried a bunch of other things. Uh, a bunch of other products, and either they were things you squirt in the ear and you ain't doing that with him, and once he knows that's what you want to do, his training is still like, you know what, dude, we're not doing that. Um, so I had to have a wipe to work with him. And uh, I tried a bunch of different things, and this is what worked. And it has done a great job, and I don't ever have a 2 a.m. wake up with a, with a miserable dog anymore. I really recommend if you keep dogs, you do good ear hygiene with them, and I recommend that you try this product. I think it'll work for you, and it's eight bucks a tub, eight bucks. And like I said, if you have one dog, it should last you well past a year. Uh, with three dogs, once I got through that first hump of getting them up to where I wanted them, uh, a tub lasts me about a year with three dogs. So there you go. Anyway, remember you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. A song of the day today is from Garth Brooks to Pina Coladas, and uh, we'll wrap up Garth Brooks' week. Folks that wrote this song said they had uh, actually written 
a bunch of songs in kind of a, a session, a winter session of, of writing together. It's three people. I don't remember their names now. I'm not going to look it up. I'll put a link to Song Facts so you can learn more if you care. Um, but, you know, it was winter. It was cold. It was rainy. It was nasty. Kind of like it is right now. It's like 46 degrees and gray. and It's been gray for three days now. Um, and they were just kind of miserable with it. So they kind of just, let's do a song about being drunk and drinking some pina coladas on the beach. Doesn't that sound good right now? And so they, they just kind of put this together really, really quick, and they, they played it for one of Garth's people, and the guy's like, I don't want to play that for Garth. And then when they came back and said, Garth's going to cut this song, they were like, really? They didn't even expect it. Um, but I, I think I know why John Adam put it in the lineup this week. Number one, it's Friday. And this is a Friday song, guys. Come on now. Let's get, let's get some Captain Morgan going and get down to the warm beach and have, have some fun. It was a Friday song. But the other reason is, for what I just said, it's winter. A lot of us are looking out of the gray window right now. A lot of you guys are fixing to get rocked with a major winter storm. I think it'll just make you feel a little bit better. Summer's going to come. We prepare for winter. Winter's here. So now we roll through winter. We head into spring and eventually we get to summer and... Some of us, not me this year, but some of us, even during winter, might take that little, you know, vacation out to the coast or something and get, go somewhere a little bit warmer. I won't be able to do that this summer when it's warm anyway, but we can always take that little trip in our mind, as we're going to do today with Garth, Captain Morgan. This has been Jack Spierko, another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get you up or even if they don't. I was feeling the Watching the news when this fella came on the TV. He said, I'm telling you that science has proven that heartaches are healed by the sea. Well, that got me going without even knowing, and I backed right up and drove down. Now I'm on a roll, and I swear to my soul, tonight I'm gonna paint this town. So bring me to Pina Coladas I want one for each hand Let's set sail with Captain Morgan Over oh, never leave dry land Hey, troubles, I forgot them I buried them in the sand So bring me to Pina Coladas to her good timing I buried them.
Carolina She said goodbye to her good time and man Say 